So for those of you that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you this morning. Turn with me to begin with to Psalm 32. It's where we were last Sunday morning, and then we will go to Matthew chapter 1. And <clears throat> a series of messages over the in the Advent season, and probably will go into at least one or two Sundays in January as well, but on the cradle and the cross. And uh, if we complete this first section that I began last Sunday morning, we will move to Galatians chapter 3. I want us to read the first five verses of Psalm 31. We will be in and about this psalm. I work with, excuse me, Psalm 32. Um, I want to remind you that... uh, There are two psalms that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba. This is the first one. He then wrote Psalm 51. Uh, Similar, but different, of course. Selah. Go with me to Matthew chapter 1. Verses 20 and 21. But while he, Joseph, thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. May God bless the reading of his holy word in our hearing this morning. Let's once again go to his throne of grace in prayer. Father, as the praise team is sung this morning, we are to prepare you room. And Lord, we ask by the Spirit of God that where we are ignorant, that you would teach us. Where we are poor, that you would make us rich in the Spirit. And where we need to be moved upon and convicted, as David said, your hand was heavy upon him, and there are times when your hand is heavy upon us. So grant that this morning and teach us that conviction is a grace given because you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we did start last Sunday looking at uh, four specific topics. These somewhat, these are more textual sermons than certainly expositional sermons. But we want to examine four topics over these next few weeks. Last Sunday we started to look at forgiveness of sins and what is required of God in forgiveness of sins. And we'll continue with that this morning. After that, the satisfaction for sins. God has to be satisfied. So how is he satisfied? Thirdly, we want to look at substitution for sins. They are not the same. Satisfaction for our sins and substitution for our sins are not the same. They are different, and we'll look at that. And then the final in the uh, messages on the cradle and the cross will be salvation for sins and how all of this comes together. 
So last Sunday morning, we started to look at uh, the four understandings, of, the four things that we need to understand, four biblical concepts, if you would, uh, about forgiveness of sins. And in order for our sins to be forgiven, we examined, the first thing is the gravity of our sin, the seriousness of sin. And so we spent some time looking at that. Secondly, we closed out last Sunday morning looking at our moral responsibility, human moral responsibility. And I reminded you that this too is a gift from God. Given us, God created us in His image, and then He gifted us with responsibility. He knows that we are intelligent, and He knows that we are to be individuals that once we hear the Word of God, that we that we confess our sins and then uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ and then from that point on begin to live what we refer to as a Christian life. So we looked at those first two last Sunday morning. This morning I want to look at the next two, God willing, and the next two have to do with the, the third element of this is true and false guilt. The difference between acknowledging the truth of our guilt and the difference between not acknowledging that sometimes we lie about guilt. And these are necessary for us to understand why God moved to save us. First slide, if you would, brother. So here's the takeaway. Uh, let's see. Yeah, true and false guilt. If we have sinned, and we have, and we are responsible, and we are, then we are guilty before God. The Bible is very clear about our guilt. Sin results in guilt. Because we have wronged God. And we've wronged God by our own fault. No one else makes us wrong God. So it's our fault that we've wronged God. And because we have wronged God, we are liable for His just penalty. And we're going to look at that as the fourth element here in just a moment. And this penalty is demanded of him, it is required of him because he is a God of holy love and he is also a God of righteousness because he is holy, because he loves and because he is righteous, he demands a penalty and he executes a penalty. All this we know but we suppress it. We just finished about a year ago now in the book of Romans. And we spent six years going through Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. In the book of Romans, Paul divides humanity into three major sections. And he does this at the outset. And he shows how each major section, each people group, if you please, knows something of their moral duty 
But each of these people groups, in turn, suppress that knowledge. And we're part and parcel of, we'll see here in just a minute, of one of these people groups. And we suppress the knowledge because we desire to pursue a sinful course. And this is true of all humanity. Now, we're not going to turn to the book of Romans, but I want you to look at verses 3 and 4, Psalm 32, because this helps us focus on what Paul is going to teach us here. David said, when I kept silent, my bones grew old. In other words, David says, I ached because I forfeited the responsibility of asking God's forgiveness for my sins. And he says, not only that, but I groaned. My spirit was suppressed all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. David was guilty of the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and then the subsequent sin of murder of Uriah the Hittite, her husband. And as I mentioned last Sunday morning, what occurs here is at least nine months, if not a year, after the initial contact that he had with Bathsheba. And now Nathan is standing before him. Nathan has has uh, has basically preached the word of God to him more clearly. David is convicted. And now David writes this song. In the latter part of verse 4, he says, my, vit- my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And then he uses the Hebrew word selah. I need to think about these things. Do you think about your sin? Do you think about the gravity of your sin? And do you think about the moral responsibility we have to respond to God when he does place a heavy hand on us. Well, Paul would take this a little bit further. Next slide, if you would. So in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, and we spent some time in there because sin is, uh, is one of the uh, primary doctrines taught in the Word of God, and unless we understand the gravity of it, we'll never be saved. So in the first chapter, after Paul's salutation and his introduction, Paul begins with the pagans, and that's where you and I were. And in verses 18 through 32, Paul writes, they know God's power. They have seen God's glory from his creation, and they understand holiness from their consciences but they refuse to live up to this knowledge. And instead, they turn to idolatry. This occurs today. This gentleman talked about worshiping idols, and we worship idols, and this culture worships worships idols, and the great idol that we tend to worship is me. So Paul says they've turned to idolatry. And because of this, God gave them over, gives them over to immorality and disgrace. He permits them to wallow in their own sin. They are morally irresponsible, secondly. And because of this, they have false guilt, not true guilt. Secondly, he addresses the self-righteous. And this begins in chapter 2. 
And he has two classes of people here. He talks to the Jews and to religious Gentiles. So some of us at some time or another fell into that second category, religious Gentiles. He says their knowledge of God's law is either in the Scriptures. Now the Jews claim this. The Scriptures were given to them. The book of Hebrews talks about this. Or in their hearts. And the Gentiles were all about feelings. Does that sound familiar? Hasn't changed a great deal. But Paul said the Jews don't live up to the Scriptures and the Gentiles don't live up to their consciences. So again, they are morally irresponsible. And thirdly, in chapter 3, Paul begins to define the hyper-religious Jews. And he is addressing here himself prior to his conversion and those of his fellow Jews who pride themselves on the knowledge they have and the moral instruction that they can give to others. Well, I may not live this way, but I can tell you how to live. And yet, Paul says they disobey the law because they neglect its finer elements. And you remember Jesus said these things, talking about fasting and so forth in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, these things you ought to have done and not left these others undone. But they did. They neglected the finer elements of the law, and they assume that their privilege renders them immune to God's judgment. Does that sound familiar? So when you think about David's writing in Psalm 32... And when you think about Paul's writing in the book of Romans, this is a span of about a thousand years or so, and now you think about it in today's time and place, a span of about two to three thousand years, what we find is people are guilty. In fact, Paul summarizes this in the latter part of chapter three by saying, what then? Are we better than they? Are we better than the pagans? Are we better than those that are self-righteous? Are we better than those that think that God won't judge them? And he says, no, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. So it matters not how morally we live if we have not acknowledged that sin before God then we're irresponsible. And he goes on to say, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Now who's under the law? Well, the pagans weren't under the law. They, they did with their own thing. No, that's not what he says. He said they're under the law. When they have in their conscience the law of God and they suppress it, they're under the law. Well, the Jews are self-righteous. They were trying to know they were under the law. The weight and hand of God was heavy, is heavy upon every people group alive today or that has ever lived. It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty 
before God. Understanding how guilty we are should motivate us to acknowledge to the one that knows our hearts that in truth we are guilty before him. Why the cradle? Because God knew we would suppress the truth unless Jesus came. Next slide. <clears throat> now, sometimes people will say, and I've heard said, sometimes I've even said it, you know, people, you know, Christianity, they harp on sin all the time. Well, there's a reason for that. <laughs> the Bible does. All the time. God warns us about the consequences of our sin. Jesus said in Mark 2, It is not the healthy that need a physician, but the sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, this is the nature of false guilt. This has always been with us. And that is we fabricate a victim mentality. And then we blame the Word of God, the beauty of the Spirit of God, bringing about a conviction to us. We blame the Word of God for making us feel bad. We don't want to feel bad. So we blame the Bible. We blame the preacher we blame the teacher. Sometimes we blame, our, we blame our parents or ad infinitum. We blame others. But we ignore the gravity of our own sin and the responsibility we have to acknowledge that sin. Now, I'll ask you this question. How can anyone imagine that the Christian faith is all about sin rather than its forgiveness. Is that not what the, what the Christmas story is about? You will call his name Jesus for he will forgive his people of their sins. But you got to know what sin is before you understand forgiveness. So, remember the story of the prodigal? The Bible says that he asked for his inheritance and his father gave him his inheritance which basically said and then the prodigal, the younger son, ran off and basically said, I wish you were dead. That's what it meant. I want to take my inheritance. I want the money. Money, 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 money. I want the money. And now I'm leaving you. And he did. And he squandered it. And then Luke records, he came to himself. And notice something. He had to come to himself before 
he went back to his father. That's how depraved we are. The Spirit of God has to move in our hearts to come to a point to where we understand that we are sinners. Now, the prodigal, thankfully, did repent of his sins. He went back to his father. We know the story. And so what we learn from this story is that all sinners, those three people groups, all sinners are guilty of false accusation against God the Father. Even the elder son who said, listen, you, you, the father came out, and he, was, he never came into the party. He missed the party because of false guilt. He wouldn't acknowledge his own self-righteousness. He missed it. And he missed the joy of the return of his brothers. And the elder son, Luke says, was angry and would not go in. This morning, I'm speaking out of children of God. If you carry with you anger or resentment or envy or jealousy or strife against someone in your family or a friend or so, you need to acknowledge it and you need to ask for forgiveness not only of God, from God, who else do you need to ask forgiveness of? The one where you wouldn't go into the party. And you will call his name Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. This is one of those sins. We are not permitted to harbor these things all of our life and then seem to say that Jesus is my Savior. There has to be some outward expression of what has taken place inwardly within us. And the elder son missed the party because of his brother's forgiveness, because he felt sorry for himself. He had a false guilt. And the prodigal had true guilt and confessed it before him. Next slide. Now, here's how you define those. <clears throat> False guilt sometimes is feeling bad about the evil we have not done and worrying about something we're going to be tempted about. If there is false guilt, feeling bad about the evil we have not done, then there's also false innocence. We feel good about the evil that we have done. I showed them. You remember the story of Paul? We talked about Paul here, writing the first three chapters of the book of Romans. Do you remember why Paul writes the way he does? Brother Gordon was teaching, and he taught so well this morning in the introduction to the book of Philippians. We forget something about Paul. Paul was in that third category. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he said, and he says this in the book of Philippians. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin, he said, when it came to the law, I was blameless. But Paul was angry. Chapter 9 of the book of Acts says, Paul saw, rather, yet breathing out destructions against the early church. Angry. 
So his heart was nowhere close to God. Oh, yeah. He had every jot, every tittle covered. But his heart was far from God. Paul knew that. He writes that. David acknowledged his responsibility and guilt. Look at verse 5 of Psalm 32. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I, I surrendered to your conviction, and man, I have peace. You realize that we live in a world that cries for peace? all the time, but has rejected the Prince of Peace? Do you realize how naive the world is? We expect perfection out of people, and that's, a, that's being naive. Expecting perfection out of me or out of you, that's naive. God is not naive, and we have the cradle because he knew we needed the cross. The divine work of the atonement has its roots in the cradle, but it required our sins to be nailed to the tree. If we could have been saved without Jesus dying, God would have made that happen, but he didn't because it could not have been done. And we'll see that when we get to satisfaction. Now, Adam and Eve, this is how sharp these are. Now, from what we understand about creation, Adam and Eve would have been the most intelligent people that had ever lived. And yet, Adam and Eve let a snake Tell them what to do. And if you and I had been there, we'd have done the same thing. It's part and parcel of the nature of sin. And notice what happened. And then when they did, they assigned false guilt to each other. The woman that you gave me, then they eventually blamed God for it. And we do the same thing. Over and over and over. They wallowed in their confusion. And folks enjoy that. They enjoy wallowing in confusion or being just in a big mess. Rather than take and assume the true guilt of their actions. They didn't confess their sins. They didn't repent. They didn't exercise faith in the God who had created them. In fact, it had evolved so far that in chapter 3 of the book, excuse me, chapter 4 of the book of Genesis, Cain says, told God after he, had, after he had killed his brother Abel, he says, my punishment is more than I can bear. And <laughs> no, it was. Oh, this hand is heavy upon me. And it wasn't until David confessed his sin that he felt the peace of God. Beloved, you may be listening this morning. You may be here this morning. I want, to, I want you to grasp this today. The cross brings peace. Not the cradle. The cross sustains us 
with peace. Most lives are lived without understanding the gravity of sin, of refusing responsibility, and we're talking about spiritual responsibility here, and the spiritual responsibility we have for sins. Most lives are lived blaming God in false guilt rather than confessing our true guilt and receiving the precious gift of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. No peace without the cross. Next slide. So we've looked at the gravity of sin. We've looked at our moral responsibility to respond to the gravity of our sin. We have looked at, to a certain extent, false and true guilt. We're going to close this morning over these next few minutes. We're looking at God's holiness and wrath. Now, we're in chapter in Psalm 32. Look at verse 4. We talked about that. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. Now drop down to verse 10. <clears throat> Actually, look at verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. This is the Lord speaking to David. Don't be like the horse or like the mule. Don't act dumb. That's what the Spirit of God is saying. They have no understanding. They must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they won't come near to you. They have to be domesticated. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, in order for us to understand forgiveness of sins, we have to understand God's holy wrath. It's not optional. It is part of why Christ became incarnate in the cradle and then was nailed to the cross. Merriam-Webster, great dictionary. 2022, the word for the year is the word gaslighting. Gaslighting is defined as the act or practice of grossly misleading someone, especially for your own advantage. Could use, we use the words of ulterior motive for years, but now they've kind of put it together. Gaslighting. And you hear it quite a bit. So this is the word for the year. And the word aptly defines how we substitute false guilt for true guilt. We gaslight ourselves. But this is mild when it comes to humanity's gaslighting of God's holy wrath. And we do it. The entire world laughs at the wrath of God. Do we think that God is justified in punishing evil? Or do we even think that our sins are evil? Poneria, that's the, we, had, we listed five words for sin last Sunday morning. This was the last one. 
the wickedness and evil. We, we don't think that way. I don't think that way. And we don't think that way because sin is naturally ingrained in us and all of us are guilty. And because we are, it's human nature. And that's what we write it off to. It's human nature. Why do we celebrate the cradle and the cross? Why do we, at this time of year during the Advent season, why do we spend so much time looking at the birth of Jesus? And we should. But in many cases, we neglect the cross. You see, they're both essential. We don't have the cross without the cradle. So they're both essential to the background of our responsibility and guilt. Gabriel pointed to Joseph and told him, this is what's going to happen. This is what you're going to do. You will have a son, and this is why he's here. God's very direct. God is very positive as to why he became incarnate. We, rather, God reacts to the gravity of sin because of his holy love. Now, his love is holy too, and his holy wrath. And they're indistinguishable. We'll speak more to that next week. But they're indistinguishable. And they complement each other. We need them. They teach us about why he became incarnate. And they teach us about why he is satisfied in Jesus Christ. He's not satisfied in me, nor you, nor any of the three people groups that Paul talked about. He's satisfied only in himself, and that prompted the incarnation. Now, the Scripture cries that our sins effectively separate us from him. Not only do they, are we separated from him, but he, his face is hidden from us. We're studying the book of Exodus on Sunday night. We will eventually be to chapter 29, 30, and so forth when Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the, the law a second time. And there he asked to see God, uh, see God face to face. And God said, you can't do this, Moses. You can't. No one can see me and live. That's the way we are today. If the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected glory were to walk through this door this morning, each and every one of us would die. John saw yet but a vision of him in Revelation chapter 1, and fell on his face as a dead man. No mortal human being ever sees God and lives. And so his face is hidden from us, and the Bible says that he refuses to hear our prayers. When we don't consider the gravity of our sins. Turn with me to Isaiah 59. 
Look at verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, and your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. So Isaiah, talking to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, reminds them that the reason that all of the isolation and captivity is taking place and will take place is because of this very thing. Next slide, if you would. So God's hand is not sure. He, he, he can and will forgive. But when we harbor these things within us without asking for forgiveness of them, had only in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we refuse to accept the true guilt that we have, then he says, your iniquities have separated you from me. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. We learn a, a, an important principle about prayer here. The Lord has answered a number of prayers for the Flat Creek family over the years. It's been our privilege to pray for us. But I would ask you this question this morning. When you pray for the physical healing of someone and you approach the throne of grace, do you first ask the Lord for forgiveness of your sins? Robbie and I have grace at home, say grace, over our meals. Usually we rotate. And when we do, invariably, both of us say, Lord, forgive us of our sins through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are times when we cry out to God like Peter did when he tried and attempted to walk on the water and then he began to drown and Peter reached up and just said, Lord, save me. And the Lord obviously did. <laughs> Thankfully, he did. We're preaching through First Peter. Pick it up again in January. What does this teach us about prayer? It teaches us exactly what Isaiah prophesied. If we harbor iniquity, if we have not confessed it before him, then we expect, and we expect. We're like the French philosopher Rousseau who says, God will forgive because that's his job. How arrogant. But Isaiah says in prophecy, as the Lord says, his face is hidden so that he will not hear. And I'll close this out this morning. There's a number of quotes here, but I want you to, to follow these. Uh, Reverend R.V.G. Tasker, who was a theologian at the University of London many, many years ago, wrote about uh, love and wrath. 
talking about the love and wrath of God. And he said this, It is an axiom in the Bible that there is no incompatibility between these two attributes of the divine nature. So God's love nor his wrath are incompatible. For the most part, the great Christian theologians and preachers of the past have endeavored to be loyal to both sides of the divine self-disclosure. God revealed himself as a God of love. God revealed himself as a God of wrath. And they are compatible. And the Word of God then is condemningly clear that unless we rid ourselves of sin, we will suffer His wrath. And the word suffer is intentional. We will suffer His wrath. Christ suffered His wrath. Each biblical author that mentions God's wrath, and almost every one of them do. They were not embarrassed to do so. But if we were to have to give an account as believers today before a group of laughing people who discount the wrath of God, in many cases we'd be embarrassed to do so, would we not? And yet, God's love, His holy love, and His holy wrath are inseparable. Now, the wrath of God, and I've taught on this before, but just to give you some background here again. Don't confuse our anger with God's anger. They are not the same. James Denny, again, an English theologian, said that human anger was the instinctive resentment or reaction of the soul against anything which it regards as wrong or injurious. Injurious, injurious. So when we think someone is harming us, we become angry. Or we think someone is harming someone that we love or doing something to us or, or we assume that this is happening, then what happens is we become angry. Now, this is not how God, this is not God's anger. Next slide, if you would. Leon Morris is an Australian. He passed away just a few years ago, again, a theologian, and he said, God's wrath is his personal divine revulsion to evil. It revolts, it causes him to, in fact, we'll see here in just a moment, the, the, the strongest indication of God's anger and his reaction to evil is vomit. A good old English word found in the Bible. God's wrath is his personal divine revulsion to evil, absolutely pure and uncontaminated by those elements that render human anger sinful. Be angry and sin not, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And in order to do that, we must be filled with the Spirit of God. God's anger is free from any personal animosity. It's free from any personal vindictiveness. Ours is not. And it occurs simultaneously with his undiminished love for the sinner. 
He's angry with our sins and angry with the sinner because we have overstepped our boundaries, overstepped his boundaries. Charles Cranfield, another Englishman. God's anger is no nightmare of indiscriminate, uncontrolled, irrational fury, but the wrath of the holy, merciful God called forth by and directed against men's ungodliness and unrighteousness. We have to understand this in order to be saved. God's holiness exposes sin. That's seen time and again in the Word of God. And God's wrath opposes sin. He doesn't accept it. He is intolerant of sin. Sinners cannot approach Him. And God cannot tolerate sin. So the Bible uses metaphors to describe this great gulf between God and man. And sometimes it uses the word higher. He says God is higher than we are. Sometimes it uses a phrase that he's far away, that he's away from us. Sometimes he's light. Sometimes he's a consuming fire. We've seen that in Exodus chapter 3. But the most revolting and the most dramatic use uh, is, uh, or rather is the use of the word vomiting that it turns God's stomach. Next slide. His rejection of evil is as decisive as our body's rejection of poison by vomiting. It's a violent reaction to something that is harming the body. In the book, book of Leviticus, and we're not going to turn there this morning, but in chapter 18 of the book of Leviticus, God says there that the sins of the Canaanites were so revolting that the land vomited out its inha- inhabitants. And then God goes on to say in, Luke, in Leviticus chapter 18, he says, if you do the very same sins, if you commit the very same sins they do, guess what? The land's going to do the same thing to you. And they did. And God took them into captivity. Now Jesus said, standing at the door of the church of Laodicea, in Revelation 3, he said, So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The old King James uses the word spew, but it's the same understanding. Now, the metaphor is revolting. And one of the reasons the Spirit of God used this word was because it was revolting. But it's also clear. God cannot digest sin and hypocrisy. But man, are these foreign to our ears today. Yet, God still loves sinners. And he moved to be born as a babe in a cradle. Yes, sin revolts him. Yes, he spews us out. But it didn't change his holy love. 
From his wrath, we learn to appreciate the access to God that Jesus won for repentant sinners only when we realize God's inaccessibly, inaccessibility to sinners. We have access through Jesus, and without Jesus, we don't. Next slide. Robert Dale, another theologian, it is partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe that sin provokes the wrath of God. When's the last time we've heard or even personally that we've wept over our sin? We don't. And that's why when we preach or teach on the wrath of God, people get all upset because they don't see the gravity of sin. In the verses that closed out Psalm 32, we read that just a few moments ago. A German by the name of Gustav Stalin wrote, Only he who knows the greatness of wrath will be mastered by the greatness of mercy. God's mercy. Our sin's forgiveness is radical. It's not commonplace. It's not to be expected. It's radical. It calls the change in God, in the nature of who He is, to save us. And it causes a change in those that call out to Him to be saved. It took a radical atonement that began in the cradle and continued to the cross to save sinners. John Stott, who went home to be with the Lord about 10 years ago, wrote, if we interpret sin as a lapse instead of a rebellion and God as indulgent instead of indignant, then naturally the cross appears superfluous. And B.F. Westcott, another, in fact, wrote a number of commentaries Nothing superficially seems simpler than forgiveness. God forgive me. And he will. Nothing superficially seems simpler than forgiveness. But nothing if we look deeply is more mysterious or more difficult. Are you glad and thankful that you're forgiven this morning? Are you thankful for the blood of Christ shed for you? shed for the sins of the world in order that each and every person that repents of their sins, calls out to him, would be saved. He will save, he will forgive his people of their sins. But before God forgives, he has to be satisfied. And we will look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son. Teach us, Father, the gravity of our sin. Teach us our responsibility to respond. Teach us to be true in identifying our guilt, our sins before you. And teach us that you're a holy God with holy love and holy wrath to those 
that reject your holy love. Have your sweet will, your divine way, the remainder of the service this morning. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. <clears throat> Robbie and I went <clears throat> by to see Vance and Stacy and Lydia last night, and um, you know, newborn babes are just incredible, just incredible. The skin is so beautiful and just just incredible, creation of God. And I thought while we were there, you know, our Lord Jesus. Look like that. But 33 years later, he didn't. Are you, do you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior this morning? Have you accepted the responsibility of confessing your sins before him, calling out to him with the understanding that he loves you? In spite of all that we have done, there is no sin that can separate us from the love of God, thankfully. We're going to sing a hymn this morning, give you an opportunity. If you don't know the Lord to save you, our, our prayer for you is that you would make your way out of the pew. Yes, you need to do this publicly. You do. You need to do it publicly. We can take you to a private prayer room with an open Bible, lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of God's love for his son and God's love for you and I, you'll be forgiven. And then the wonder of the Christian life lies before you. We encourage you to make that, to make that, call today to answer the call of the Spirit of God. If you're here today as a child of God and God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of the Flat Creek family, we encourage you also to make that decision. Perhaps you know the Lord is Savior. You need to follow Him in believer's baptism. Would you also do that this morning? As a child of God, let's never underestimate our sin and let's never overestimate our Savior. You can't do either one. What number, Brother Mike? 105. 105. If the Lord's called you, respond.